This is Archive Atlanta, episode 24, John Wesley Dobbs. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Happy Friday, everyone! Before getting started today, I want to tell you about an event that is coming up next week, uh, next weekend in March, called Phoenix Flies. If you're not familiar, this is basically history lovers' version of Christmas, or the Super Bowl, or the World Series. Just insert whatever sports analogy you like. Um, this is what we look forward to every year. And it's a month-long event, and these are free tours to almost a hundred different places. And some of these are tours that occur year-round, and they just happen to be free, but most of these are things that don't happen ever. So this is your chance to get into buildings that are not open to the public, to meet people that you may only follow online, or to hear lectures about really unique stuff. For me, Phoenix Flies is not just exciting as someone who wants to go on the tours, but it also marks the beginning of the Atlanta Preservation Center tour season. So for me, it's always my first Sweet Auburn tour of the year. I'm always a little nervous and excited Uh, This year, I'm really excited because I feel like I've expanded my knowledge so much while researching these podcast episodes. And so um, I think, gosh, I think it might be my fifth year now as a volunteer. I think this is going to be my best Sweet Auburn tour yet. Now, if you enjoy hearing me ramble on the podcast and you're interested in hearing me ramble in real life, my tours um, are going to be on March 2nd and March 16th, both at 11 a.m. I'm putting a link to the entire Phoenix Flies program in the show notes, but the Sweet Auburn tour that I do starts at the Apex Museum right in front, and the address there is 135 Auburn Avenue. I also want to welcome any new listeners that have joined in the last few weeks. I know that the really popular episodes like baseball or certain Atlanta neighborhoods, they're kind of universally appealing, and they tend to draw the new people in, But my favorite episodes will always be the ones that hopefully share the histories of the lesser known. And I have a running list of what I jokingly call my favorite Atlantans, uh, and John Wesley Dobbs is at the very top. For many, the name rings a bell because you've driven down the street, and then it kind of ends there. I always ask people on the tour, and so very few people have ever heard of him. For a man that has done so much for his home, his people, his family... I want to make sure that this history is shared with as many people as possible. The best part is there are lots of tangible places to visit and connect with this episode. So today, I not only want to tell you about John Wesley Dobbs, but his family and the amazing things that they've all accomplished. The story begins in Kennesaw. And for all of those people that turn into pumpkins when they cross over the ITP line, This is up in Cobb County, and it is well known for the National Battlefield Park. There is a big mountain there. There's also a ton of land around it, and it is one of my favorite trail runs um, in the metro Atlanta area. We start with an enslaved man named Wesley, who is the property of Josiah Dobbs. And when Josiah dies, his estate lists his most valuable human property as Wesley, age 32 and worth $800. Wesley would go on to marry Judy, whose mother was enslaved, Um, and her father was her owner. Wesley and Judy would have 14 children over a period of almost 30 years. As Southerners say, bless her heart. 
Their first son was born in 1847, and they named him Will. And our first tangible thing in this episode is actually right here. The graves of Wesley and Judy Dobbs are located in the middle of the trees somewhere along the base of Kennesaw Mountain. I've seen photos of the headstones online and in books, but I have no clue where they are. So once this monsooning rain stops, uh, finding these is at the top of my list. And if someone knows where they are and wants to help me find them, my contact information is always in the show notes, so let me know. In 1862, in Woodstock, Georgia, on the farm of Dr. John Miller McAfee, an enslaved woman named Martha is born. And she would go by Minnie. She was born to a 20-year-old enslaved mother that was impregnated by her almost 60-year-old master, Mr. McAfee. Will and Minnie were married. He was 29 years old, and she was 14. They would only have two children, John Wesley Dobbs, born in 1882, and Willie Dobbs, who was actually a girl. After eight years together, Will and Minnie split up, and she headed for Savannah. John Wesley Dobbs was only two years old when his mom left, so he went to live with his grandparents, and he lived there for the next seven years. The story is that his mother would often come from Savannah, but she would only stay for a few days. So it was pretty a brief visit. And as a young boy, he was really emotional. Every time his mom would leave, he would cry for her not to leave. As Minnie was able to work and save money, she finally brought her kids to Savannah in 1891. And this move was really important for John because he was finally able to attend quote-unquote real school as in not only three months out of the year in a rural one-room schoolhouse only for black children. In Savannah, he would attend the Broad Street School, which actually began as the Scarborough House, and it was one of the first schools dedicated to educating black children in the area. Now, it was also the school that Adrian Herndon went to. Now, if you know who that is, you're like, oh, cool. If you don't know, you're like, what the heck am I talking about? (laughs) So I'm not going to go into that amazing woman today. I want to have an entire episode um, focusing on the Herndons in the near future. But the school that John Wilson Dobbs went to is still there. And if you're ever in Savannah, it's now the Ships of the Sea Museum. So if you're there, just make sure to pop on by and check that out. When John was in the fifth grade, his mother was once again struggling financially, and she needed to take him out of school. At this time, a local white woman offered him a job, and he began shining shoes in downtown Savannah, and he also delivered newspapers. So not only was he able to finish school in 1897, but throughout this time, he was even able to purchase his own clothes, which was really a big deal for a kid. When he finishes at the Broad Street School, he's about 15 years old, and his, I'm not sure if his mother went first or went with him, but she was moving to Atlanta, so he decided to move back there as well. His grand plans are to enroll in the Atlanta Baptist Seminary. Now we call that Morehouse College, but first he spends the summer picking peaches to make some money. By the fall, he enrolls, and once again, his mother Minnie's personal issues derail his course. His mom falls ill, and then in order to support her, there's no way that he can go to school and take care of his family. So for the second time, someone would step in to help. The Reverend E.J. Fisher of Mount Olive Baptist pays his tuition. Now, his sons actually also went to Morehouse as well. And he gets John Wesley Dobbs a job at a drugstore that's at the corner of Piedmont and Houston Street. By 1900, John is living in a boarding house downtown with his mother, his sister, Um, and his nephew. 
He would re-enroll at the future Morehouse again, but sadly by 1901, his mother's health again forces him to drop out. Now, he would never go back to school again. So that was kind of one of his laments in life, but he was a voracious reader um, and always wanted to learn. He just never had formal education. In 1903, John Wesley Dobbs applies to become a railway mail clerk. Now, if you don't know what that is, let me give you a tiny history lesson. By 1838, the U.S. Congress declares that all railroads are postal routes because it was a financial boom for the Postal Service. It was like the easiest way to get mail to people. So a mail car is a railroad car full of mail, and it could be really dangerous. They're vulnerable to fire. Sometimes they jump the tracks, they would have train collisions, and then in later years there would be robberies. A railway mail clerk is literally guarding the mail, and they would carry a government-issued gun. John Wesley Dobbs had a Colt revolver that was given to him by the U.S. government. And government jobs for African Americans were extremely sought after. In one sense, you were avoiding the local job discrimination You know, like if you're living in Alabama or in Georgia, as opposed to New York, you're going to have a harder time getting a job. Now, because the mail clerk job was a mail-in civil service exam, that promised some of the most unbiased employment opportunity for black men. Mr. Dobbs' salary was $8,000 a year, which would easily support him and his mother. And what's amazing is that he would hold this position for the next 32 years. I always enjoy hearing a good love story, and the one for John and his future wife goes a little bit like this. John Wesley Dobbs is sitting in his barber chair um, inside a shop on Auburn Avenue when he sees two women walk by. And then the men know uh, the one woman she's married to somebody they know, but the other woman no one had ever met. And he jumps out of his chair uh, and finds out what her name is, and it turned out uh, she was Orphelia Thompson. She was 20 years old and visiting her sister from Columbus, Mississippi. By the following year, John and Orphelia are married at the First Congregational Church. And that church still stands today, by the way. It's on the corner of Cortland Street and John Wesley Dobbs Avenue, which is named after him. Um, And it's full of history, so I hope to include more about that in a future episode. After getting married, they live in a home on Auburn Avenue, almost right across from the birth home of um, Dr. King. And they share it with Orphelia's sister and her husband. Their names were Ed and Carolyn Wright. This is 1906 when they get married, and if you've been listening to my other episodes, 1906 is the year of the deadly and violent Atlanta race riot. John spends the entire night of the riot clutching his Colt revolver, just waiting inside the door of the house. Now, the mobs did not make it all the way down to their home, but the story is that he didn't leave that spot behind the door for the next three days. Two years later, in 1908, their first daughter is born, and they named her Irene, but she lovingly went by Rainey. In 1909, the Dobbs purchased their first family home, which was at 540 Houston Street. And the Auburn area was originally German, um, and then around the turn of the century, more and more African-American families would move in. So by the time the Dobbses purchased their home from a German woman, the transition in the neighborhood was almost complete. The family would live in that house for the next 52 years. Miraculously, it survived the 1917 fire. The fire ended two blocks from their house, which is just crazy because it took out almost all of the whole fourth ward. And you guys, the house is still there. Over the next 20 years, they would have five more daughters, so six in total. 
After Rainy, there was Willie, Millie, Josie, Geeky, and June. Now, those are all their nicknames. Um, They had longer names, but you can look them up if you want to do that. Now, he would never allow his daughters to attend anything segregated in Atlanta. Um, He would say to them, quote, no pleasure in going in the back door, end quote. And he took them also on many field trips and vacations. He just wanted them to learn about different histories, different places, different people. He really stressed education as the most valued trait. Now, he did, however, have a very traditional view of femininity and the role of women. He did not want his wife to work. And I think at some point he worked three jobs just to ensure that she didn't have to. He stressed that his daughters act and dress as proper young ladies should. And this, I think, goes to show you that every person is complex and complicated. And this goes for historical figures. Our society and our brains, they like neat little categories. And we want to be able to say, well, this person was this. But it's not so easy. For me, John Wesley Dobbs is a great case study. Because as you read more about him... He was loud, he could be brash, he was not universally loved by everyone, he was really strict and hard on his daughters, but he also pushed them to excel in ways that women were not doing at that time. So, you know, like, I don't know, for me it's interesting to read about him because there's some parts I love about him and there's some parts I don't. John Wesley Dobbs would join the Georgia Prince Hall Masons in 1911. Now, Prince Hall Masons are historically African-American Masons, and the story goes all the way back to Boston and the Revolutionary War. A West Indian man named Prince Hall, who fought alongside George Washington in the war, petitioned that he and other black men be able to join the white Masonic Hall in Boston. Of course, they're denied, so they sort of start their, like, renegade branch. Since then, Prince Hall Masons are always historically black. Not shockingly is that they have yet, in 2019, to be fully embraced by white Masons. There is still a separation in the organization. John flourished as a Prince Hall Mason, and he was elected as Grand Master in 1932 when he was 50 years old. And he would be a Grand Master until he died. One of his first goals was to build a new lodge in Atlanta. Construction would begin soon after he was elected, But this is the height of the Depression, so the work stalled for many years. Finally, in 1937, um, he did some, like, I think he consolidated some of the lodges in Georgia, and he was able to funnel money into this project. So it finally opened at the corner of Auburn Avenue and Hilliard Street. And across the top, the facade of the building, you can actually see John Wesley Dobbs' Masonic insignia. Now, I was talking to a fellow history friend, Akilah, and she did some research and is pretty sure that Alexander Hamilton built this building. It was the right time period. They knew each other. So that makes me really excited. (laughs) Not only is this building still there, but it just became part of the Martin Luther King Jr. Historic Park area. So they've extended it down on Auburn to loop around the building. Aside from the Masonic meeting space on the top floor, The building was home to WERD, which was the nation's first Black-owned and operated radio station, and it was the first offices of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. So much to talk about there. I talk about it on the tour, but I'm going to talk about it one day in the future in more detail. 
One of the reasons that I love um, John Wesley Dobbs so much is that he loved Auburn Avenue. So it was his home. It was the place where he would lead the Masons. It was the place where he saw Black Atlantans living in this sweet life. And he was the one who coined the term Sweet Auburn. He took it from a really long poem (laughs) written in 1770 called The Deserted Village. But the very first line of this poem says, quote, Sweet Auburn, loveliest village of the plain, end quote. And he would stand on the sidewalk, sometimes right outside the lodge or further down the street, and he'd preach about classic novels or poems, but most of the time it was political. And he'd talk about how important voting was. A direct quote from him says, quote, eventually and ultimately, most of our problems will be solved and settled at the ballot box, end quote. In 1936, he spent two hours speaking from the pulpit of Big Bethel Church. And yes, I've managed to mention it again in another episode. Um, But he lays out a plan to create the Atlanta Civic and Political League. And the goal is to register 10,000 voters. He tells the crowd that of all the Black residents in the city, less than 600 are registered to vote. This Civic and Political League would be co-founded with C.A. Scott, who is owner of the Daily World newspaper, which is getting its own episode really soon. Both John and C.A. were conservative Republicans. And here's another layer, like I said. Not every single person fighting for voting or civil rights went about it in the same way. And their union would actually cause a rival with the prominent attorney A.T. Walden, who at this point, A.T. Walden is switching from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party. I don't want to say that Mr. Dobbs was unsuccessful, but by 1940, there are only around 2,000 African Americans registered to vote, more than when he gave the speech, but not at the numbers he hoped for. Which is why in 1946, the All Citizens Registration Committee is created by A.T. Walden. John Wesley Dobbs was not thrilled, and when you read his reaction, he was basically pouting. It was a little bit like an adult tantrum. Uh, And he did come around. He eventually worked with his organization. And once the white primary was deemed unconstitutional in 1946, that really surged voter registration. So within a few months, this All-Citizens Committee registered 25,000 Black voters. John Wesley Dobbs worked alongside with men like William Holmes Borders, which I talked about him in episode 12, C.A. Scott, A.T. Walden, and Daddy King, who was uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s father, to advance the needs of the Black community through the white political structure of Atlanta. They had been asking for African-American police officers for well over two decades, and the answer from politicians was always no. Mayor Hartsfield is quoted as saying, we'll get Black police officers, quote, as soon as we get white deacons in the First Baptist Church, end quote. So it's not happening. But with these new voters, Black Atlantans now made up a quarter of the electorate, and they would use that power. It was no longer political suicide for white politicians to be sympathetic to the Black cause. And the first African-American police officers were hired in 1948, and it was a monumentous occasion. John Wesley Dobbs' grandson remembers holding his grandfather's hand as those officers stepped out of the YMCA. He said his eyes were as big as saucers, and then he maybe saw a little tear. By the following year, A.T. and John Wesley would kind of put their differences aside, and they would start the Atlanta Negro Voters League. And the idea with this organization is that members are free to vote for whoever they want in a national election, but they promise to vote in a block 
for a agreed-upon Democratic candidate in local elections. Now, with this increased power, they are able to install electric streetlights in Auburn Avenue in 1949. As John Wesley Dobbs aged, his health kept him home more and more. But also, the younger leaders of the modern civil rights movement were coming up, and it was sort of time for this old guard to step back a little bit. On August 30th, 1961, John Wesley Dobbs dies after complications from a stroke. He passes on the same day that Atlanta schools are desegregated. At his funeral, Martin Luther King Jr. gave the eulogy. And I have a link in the show notes if you guys want to listen, which I highly recommend. It's only six minutes long, but it's really beautiful to hear what he had to say. Thurgood Marshall was actually a pallbearer at the funeral. At the time of his death, he left behind his widow, six daughters, and many grandchildren. And I want to end the episode telling you about his family, because I think that for parents, your children certainly feel like a legacy at times, almost like this is my gift to the world. (laughs) And I think that his family is his legacy aside from his accomplishments. All six of his daughters graduated from Spelman. They all got their master's degrees and two earned their doctorates. Rini, the oldest, was the first African-American to get a library card from the Atlanta Public Library. She had a master's and a doctorate in French, and she served as head of the French department at Spelman. Willie got her master's from Atlanta University, and she served as the head of the language division at Jackson State University. Millie attended Columbia for her master's and taught at a number of colleges. Uh, Josie also went to Columbia after Spelman, and she became a community activist in Durham, North Carolina. She was responsible for desegregating the YMCA there and starting the League of Women's Voters. Geeky became an internationally known opera singer, and she was one of the first Black women to sing at the Metropolitan Opera and the first Black women to sing at La Scala Opera House in Italy. And lastly, his youngest daughter, June, became the first African-American sexologist. Lots of people comment that with six daughters, he must have really wanted a son. And he did. (laughs) When his last daughter, June, was born, she said that everyone in the family seemed a little bit disappointed, except her mom. Um, And she actually went without a name for four months. But John Wesley Dobbs would get that son in 1938 in the form of his first grandchild. Rini and her husband, Maynard Jackson, became parents to Maynard Holbrook Jackson Jr. In 1974, Maynard would become the first African-American mayor in the city of Atlanta. In 1994, to honor his grandfather, he renames Houston Street, the street where the Dobbs house sat, to John Wesley Dobbs Avenue. During the Olympics, a sculpture by Ralph Helmick was installed on Auburn Avenue, And if you've driven down that street, I know you've seen it. It's right by the overpass, and it's a giant head (laughs) or a giant bust. It's called Through His Eyes. And the idea is that you can stand inside and see Sweet Auburn very literally through the eyes of the man that worked so hard to make it what it was, John Wesley Dobbs. If you come on my tour, we do stop there. But even if you don't, next time you pass that piece, stop and take a look. So that, my friends, is the story of John Wesley Dobbs. If you're intrigued and you want to know more, there is a great book, one of my favorites, called Where Petrie Meets Sweet Auburn. I have a link in the show notes for you guys. 
I also encourage you to check out all these places that are still here to explore because that is a rarity. Thank you everyone for listening and sharing the podcast. Remember to leave a rating or review on iTunes so that it's easier for people to find. And if you go explore these places and you take some photos, please hashtag Archive Atlanta. Have a great weekend and I'll talk to you next week.